I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. The order came from William Barr. Early Monday evening, the Attorney General of the United States walked out of the White House, spotted hundreds of protesters in Lafayette Park, and ordered park police officers, some on horseback, to clear them out. What happened next seems destined to become one of the iconic moments of the Trump era. The park police and other federal officers on the scene used smoke canisters, pepper poles, riot shields, and flashbangs, sending the demonstrators fleeing from the park, many of them choking for air, thereby allowing President Trump to stroll over to St. John's Church across from the park so he can hold up a Bible for a photo op. What does this scene tell us about Barr, his attitude toward the protests, and his larger view about the use of federal power to enforce his vision of law and order? We'll discuss with a member of the House Judiciary Committee, Democrat Jamie Raskin in Maryland, and we'll talk to two Amazon whistleblowers about the revelation that the company prepared pre-packaged news spots touting its purported record for safety that wound up unedited word for word on TV channels across the country corporate propaganda masquerading as news. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So we like historical analogies on this show, and um, I was inspired by our... uh, Old colleague John Harris, the uh, editor-in-chief emeritus of uh, Politico, who uh, pointed to uh, two historical events in a tweet this morning. One was 1932. Herbert Hoover orders General Douglas MacArthur to clear out the bonus marchers from Anacostia, thousands of World War I veterans who had come there demanding their bonus. 1968. Mayor Dick Daly of Chicago unleashes the Chicago police on the uh, demonstrators at the Chicago Democratic Convention in that year. And now we have an event that will probably rank up with both of those, and that is uh, William Barr's order to clear the protesters out of Lafayette Park so Trump can have that photo op at St. John's Church. This one really struck a nerve, I think, with a lot of Americans and, in fact, even with people inside the Trump administration. And we saw just today on Wednesday, as we record this podcast, that uh, Defense Secretary Esper, who was part of that uh, spectacle, has uh, started to backtrack and backpedal and, and walk away from it. You know, it was frankly, there was something obscene about it to use 
essentially military force. You know, we're going to talk to Hunter Walker, who was actually there. But, uh, you know, I believe uh, there was National Guard on the scene as well to clear a path so that the president can go and uh, pull off a totally you know, political stunt in front of a church, in front of the uh, uh, St. John Episcopal Church, the Church of Presidents, to both show a show of force to show how tough he is and that he's not weak, but at the same time brandishing a Bible to appeal to evangelical voters. We should point out that the Justice Department insists that the decision to expand the perimeter at Lafayette Park had already been made, and then it's only when Barr strolls out moments before the president has that walk to St. John's that he sees that hasn't been done, orders that it be done. But we've got our colleague Hunter Walker on the phone here. He was there that night, saw the protesters as they were being driven from Lafayette Park. Hunter, tell us what you saw. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, I I guess the first thing to do is to situate myself, right? I have been at the protests every day since they started, which was last Friday when protesters breached the barricades in Lafayette Park, which is just across from St. John's Church, really between the church and the White House off of H Street here in in Washington, D.C. So I've been out there every day, but, you know, I I do not normally report on, on civil unrest in the streets. I'm a White House correspondent. So I get the White House pool reports. And essentially, uh, we knew there was this citywide 7 p.m. curfew in Washington, which has been instituted amid the violence and unrest we've seen with some of these protests. I was heading down there at, you know, sort of half past six or so to report on the enforcement of the curfew. And as I was walking on the fringes of the park, seeing what was largely a peaceful protest, including, you know, uh, one thing I was photographing right as it started young people who um, have missed their graduation in light of the coronavirus have been wearing graduation gowns at these protests. I think to also highlight that sort of African-American people are often represented in more urban clothing when following these incidents where they're killed. Uh, So I'm literally photographing a couple of these guys in um, graduation gowns, and I start hearing these periodic explosions, these booms that we've come to know here in Washington. I mean, it's amazing how quickly this becomes routine are, you know, tear gas and flashbangs. And again, you know, we're sort of used to this, so I don't think it's a huge thing. And all of a sudden the crowd is surging all around me. And I see this contingent of U.S. Park Police on horseback. And in front of them, I believe, were these guys in sort of black riot gear Uh, There's a slew of law enforcement agencies on the streets in D.C. now, including the National Guard, including um, ATF and DEA, drug enforcement agents. I'm not sure who the people on the ground were, but the park police were behind them on horseback, and they just started firing these tear gas canisters while they were um, also hitting people with batons and shields. What's really been stunning about this in the, um, you know, I guess 24-ish hours, or I don't even know what day it is anymore, I think 48 hours since then, you've seen the Park Police, the White House, the Trump campaign, allies such as Fox News' Laura Ingram deny what we all clearly saw and say that there wasn't tear gas used to disperse these people from the park. Yeah, they're saying it was some other chemical agents, but it wasn't tear gas, although it seems a distinction without a difference. (laughs) Yeah, and I I should be clear. I'm sorry. There's so much, again, there's so much to unpack here. 
But, um, you know, part of the reason I noted that I'm a White House reporter, I was getting pool reports uh, from the White House press pool as this was happening. And I'm literally seeing the email alert on my phone pop over these these images that I'm looking at through the screen of tear gas being deployed, informing me that President Trump was on the, you know, was first speaking in the Rose Garden and then on the move from the White House to St. John's Church, which had been somewhat burned in the basement uh, during Sunday's protests. So essentially, and I will never forget this time, the according to Muriel Bowser, the uh, the mayor of D.C., the disbursement with tear gas began 25 minutes before the 7 p.m. curfew, and at exactly 7.01, with tear gas still wafting through the air, President Trump and his entourage walked out of the front of the White House to the church through the park where they'd just been cleared, where protesters had just been cleared with the tear gas. Hey, Hunter, I think we've got a clip of that video you made that night. We're going to play it now. So let's take a listen. So this chaotic scene is playing out basically as the president is set to speak in the Rose Garden. This is the backdrop to his remarks. Oh. So I'm not clear if those devices are going off all around me are coming from the protesters or from the police. Protesters have thrown fireworks. This seems way larger than that, yes. These are police, pepper, and tear gas incendiary devices. So there's tear gas in the streets 15 minutes ahead of the citywide curfew. As protesters are being pushed away from the White House complex, in advance of President Trump's speech. I posted up the video because it, to me, in light of, again, the Trump campaign, the park police, you know, uh, conservative pundits dismissing the objective reality. I had this, you know, 10 plus minute unedited cut where people can see exactly what I saw. They can see the multiple colors of gas, because again, as you alluded to, Mike, one of the you know, defenses here is that this was some other gas. This was smoke canisters. Those are usually white. Those are usually white and less irritating. They can see and hear my own irritation, even on the fringes of this. They can see protesters running, irritated by the gas, pouring water. So I I really, you know, I, I took extra time and took the step of putting a long length of footage up Because, again, we're in this place where people are trying to deny the objective reality. And I wanted to make sure that everyone saw what I saw so they can understand the reality as well. Hunter, have you uh, been able to confirm what the U.S. Park, I think it's the Park Police, that said that uh, they actually warned the protesters and gave them an opportunity to disperse on their own before they had to take more uh, aggressive measures. Do you, do you uh, there may be a fog of war situation here where some of the protesters may have heard it, but others didn't. What do you make of that? You know, look, Dan, as I was saying before, I think in this time of, you know, frankly, misinformation coming from official sources, it's so important, more important than ever, that we journalists are really precise and detailed in our information. And as I was earlier, you know, I was just coming upon the park at the moments that this began. 
right? So I don't know if potentially, you know, closer to the barricade between law enforcement and the protesters, they had made some type of announcement. I certainly didn't hear it myself. And the other question I have, have you had a chance to follow up with any of your White House sources? Because there is reporting out there that people inside the White House, and they're saying this anonymously, are appalled at how this all unfolded, that this seems to have shaken people who are actually working in the White House, this episode. You know, Dan, I I am a reporter. I value my sources. I value keeping things off record when I say they will be. And that is all I have to say about that. But what I will say is that, you know, the Parks Department, a lot of people are latching on to this official statement from the Parks Department that they used smoke canisters instead of tear gas. And it's, it's a bizarre distinction to me. I mean, tear gas is more of a colloquial term referring to a suite of lacrimators, ir- irritants. I mean, technically, technically, you know, multiple encyclopedias and even the CDC identifies pepper spray as a tear gas. Right. I don't go that far. But but this was clearly tear gas, again, yellow and white smoke. The Parks Department said it's not. What, what my understanding is, is that the Parks Department has a pretty unique role in D.C., given how much of the spaces, uh, the federal spaces in D.C. are under their jurisdiction. They actually are given equal standing to the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. And people I've spoken to believe there's no way that this incident could have begun unless Parks Department had deputized other agencies. It was the guys in black ahead of the Parks Department officers on horseback who were deploying the tear gas. But, you know, from what I've heard, there would be no way that Parks Department wasn't leading that. Even if that's not correct, it was clearly coordinated. Parks was unquestionably involved. And I think these slight distinctions, you know, was it C6 or another chemical lacrimator? You know, was it Parks or were Parks behind in helping the guys who did it? These distinctions are way less important than the fact that anyone can open their eyes. We saw on live television, even Fox News is saying it. Protesters were tear gassed in the park just ahead of the president coming out for a photo op. Hunter, it's called an all-of-government approach. But I do want to uh, uh, just tip my hat to the uh, superb work you've been doing chronicling what's going on in the streets of our nation's capital. Um, We had you on the other day when it was pretty harrowing uh, after the uh, looting and rioting that took place uh, Sunday night. But uh, your updates on what took place on Monday uh, are invaluable. And... um, Keep at it, man, and stay safe. Hunter, and we know you have to go, but you do have a little bit of breaking news, which maybe you can uh, just very, very quickly tell us about what you've learned from some of the D.C. protester groups. Yeah, I I also I just want to if you if you guys will indulge me, I want to interject because um, Mike made a great uh, historical analogy earlier. And there's one that I have been thinking of extensively in the past couple of days. And it involves Zimbabwe, the late Zimbabwean strongman, Robert Mugabe. And, you know, when he took power in Zimbabwe in 1980, he was at that time a darling of the left who thought that he might be this great African nationalist populist figure. And he hosted this independence concert. Uh, Prince Charles was there to hand off the country. And Bob Marley was actually one of the head performers. And he wrote a song for the occasion. And there were crowds at the stadium and, Zim- and Mugabe's troops 
just aggressively, aggressively tear-gassed everyone. You can read about this in the Marley biography, uh, Catch a Fire. And Bob Marley was apparently on stage getting hit with this tear gas, and it just, like, you know, permanently disillusioned him somewhat and scarred him because he was a big supporter of Mugabe and African national movements in general. And I bring that up just because, yes, we have analogies to this in American history, but this, these spectacles that I've seen, you know, within the past week here in D.C., are really like something out of another country. They're really like these stories of strongmen that we've seen over the years. Uh, but yes, Dan, I'm sorry, that's not what you actually asked me. One thing that we're, I believe, momentarily publishing on Yahoo is that a group of the protesters, uh, two veteran activists and actually a young woman who was one of the Parkland survivors from Florida, have come together. They formed a group called Concerned Citizens, and they're airing a list of demands. Uh, both national and local, including charges for all the officers involved in George Floyd's death, charges for the officers involved in the March killing of Breonna Taylor, and criminal justice reforms, including marijuana decriminalization. These people have told me that you know they were, they've seen everyone chanting in front of the White House, as we all have, and they were very eager to make sure that there was a concerted and coordinated message, including demands, to go with these protests and maximize their impact. Well, that story is already up. I've already tweeted it, so congratulations. And I will just say, coming back to Bob Marley, one of my favorite of his songs uh, was, I think, from the album Survival. It was called So Much Trouble in the World. So that's where we are, the late, great Bob Marley. Yeah, we hope there will be no burning and looting tonight, Dan. Yeah, let's hope so. Stay safe. Take care, Hunter. We now have with us Jamie Raskin, a Democrat congressman from Maryland, member of the House Judiciary Committee and regular Skullduggery guest. Congressman Raskin, welcome back to Skullduggery. Well, I'm delighted to be with you guys uh, here as uh, the Republic hangs on a thread. Momentous times. So let's start out with um, Attorney General Barr giving that order the other night to clear the protesters out of Lafayette Park. Your reaction to what you've seen about that and what you know about it? Well, I looked at that scene and, you know, being a constitutional law nerd as I am, I said they just violated the right to peaceably assemble the right to petition for redress of grievances, the right of freedom of speech. And then also they really burdened free exercise. When you think about it uh, with the president crashing a church and then uh, waving the Bible above his head. So I tweeted out immediately, the president just violated the first amendment to clear the street so he could go and violate the first commandment. He essentially created a God above the Lord of the Bible himself him and his political agenda, and uh, meantime, uh, wiped out the First Amendment rights of all of the people in the street. And uh, the, that event has really been a breaking point for, I think, millions of people across the country to see that we've got somebody in office who can act like just an, an old-fashioned tin pot dictator and use the military to crush dissent, move people out of the street as they exercise their constitutional rights, and then go and uh, wave a Bible over his head. Now, as you know, the Park Police is 
put out a statement saying that they had intelligence about potentially violent acts by some of the protesters, that uh, some uh, projectiles were being hurled at some of their officers, and they gave the protesters advance warning to clear out three occasions, and they refused to do so. Well, you know, in America, we have a system of individualized due process, and we don't believe in collective guilt, and we don't believe in mass punishment. That's why Officer Chauvin should be prosecuted for second-degree murder, but he's being prosecuted for manslaughter. They're supposed to up the charges today, Congressman. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're expecting an announcement. With that. And then the other officers should be charged with aiding and abetting, being accomplices. But the other officers on the force, they should not be prosecuted for it. And similarly, if somebody throws a rock and breaks a window, arrest that person, arrest that right-wing provocateur egged on by the white supremacist uh, websites that are sending them out there, arrest that person and cart them off, whoever it is. But you don't wipe out everybody else's free speech rights in the process. That's completely phony and artificial, and people understand that. Congressman, a couple of quick follow-up questions on that event. Uh, One is, give us your thoughts about the role of the attorney general giving the order to disperse the crowd. Uh, My understanding is that there were no law enforcement agencies that are directly under his jurisdiction. Perhaps he was directed to do this by the president. Maybe the president has the constitutional authority to do that. But what is your reaction to Attorney General Bill Barr's role in this And then I want to ask you about the military role after you've answered that question. Well, I suppose we haven't learned that much new about Attorney General uh, Barr, except the depths to which he will go. I mean, he's a fraud. He's a charlatan. He's a sycophant. He's a political hack. He has no respect or love for our Constitution and the things that define our country. The, The irony, of course, was that a week or two before he was posing as a great defender of the Constitution against the governors and mayors who had public health orders. That was too much for him. So he there he was egging on the right wing who were showing up uh, as armed militiamen protesters like at the Michigan Capitol and saying that these people are just exercising their civil rights and civil liberties. Then you've got hundreds of thousands of nonviolent, peaceful protesters in the streets objecting to police murder and official brutality. And uh, at that point, they revert back to their law and order norm, so to speak, and then decide they want to crush the dissent. But, you know, law and order starts at home. And if Donald Trump's interested in law and order, he should stop pocketing millions of dollars from the government in violation of the domestic emoluments clause with all the money that they're directing to his hotels and golf courses every time they go there. And he should stop pocketing millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, from foreign princes, kings, and states in violation of the, the foreign emoluments clause. What did you make of the fact that uh, Defense Secretary Mark Esper and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, General Milley, were, were present with the president in front of uh, St. John's Episcopal Church? Milley, by the way, in full battle fatigue. Well, the, the president has never distinguished between military and civilian authority and would not be able to give you any explanation of how they're different or what the proper relationship is under our constitutional order. And we saw that when uh, I think he was in Paris and witnessed a Bastille Day parade and decided that he wanted to have the military perform like that for him in connection with the 4th of July. He also does not distinguish between his personal political agenda 
and the official business of the United States. So this is why I say we're in a moment of tremendous danger as his polling numbers plummet and he loses uh, support all over the country. And a big majority of the American people have turned against the fraud of his administration. You're a constitutional law professor. Your thoughts on the president's threats to invoke the Insurrection Act to bring in the military to police uh, streets around the country? Well, the the constitutionality of the Insurrection Act has never been tested in the Supreme Court. At least I don't think it has been tested, certainly not for a long time. And this goes back... uh, I believe it's the 1807. Thomas Jefferson's administration, yes. (laughs) I mean, if the Congress had the authority to pass that, it had the authority to do it under Article 4, Section 4, the Republican Guarantee Clause. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but it basically says the United States shall guarantee to every state a Republican form of government. And that's not, by the way, a Republican Party form of government. It's just a Republican (laughs) form of government. And that the... State legislatures can ask the president to send out the militias to put down domestic violence. And if the state legislatures can't convene, can't meet, then the governors can do it. But all of it hinges constitutionally on the action of the states. The president does not have the power to order a military invasion of the United States or of any individual state or uh, any individual city or town. Uh, which is why it requires state action in order for there to be a federalizing and a, um, a deputization of the guard to go into the state. So you're saying the president cannot invoke the Insurrection Act on its own. It has to only in response to a request from one of the states? I think in order to conform to the Constitution. Now, the president does have the power to federalize the guard on his own, in order to prepare or get ready for a a crisis. But he does not have the power to send the guard into the states without the petition of the state legislature or the governor in the event the legislature can't meet. Although I think he may have the right to do that in the District of Columbia, which, as you know, is a federal enclave. All right. And that's a different kettle of fish, of course, because Congress exercises exclusive legislation over the seat of government, and the president has traditionally exercised it's traditionally exercised that control. So I think that's probably why they decided to do it in D.C. and to target the protesters there. All the more reason for people in D.C. to get the hell out of that situation and to become a state and to stand on a plane of quality. Well, actually, I want to follow up on that, Congressman, because you grew up in Washington. I I know that you're a passionate supporter of home rule. One of the things that I think uh, has not gotten a lot of attention, maybe overlooked somewhat, the Washington Post reported that the White House actually pushed to take control of the D.C. police, an effort that Mayor Muriel Bowser rejected. But would that have been legal? I mean, I think as a federal enclave, the law says that under certain emergency conditions, uh, the president actually has the authority to do that. But what, what do you think of, of the White House actually pushing to take over the District of Columbia's police force? Well, I would argue that that power does not exist absent congressional action. It's, uh, you know, Article 1, uh, Section 8, Clause 17 says that Congress shall exercise exclusive legislation over the district that is to become the seat of government by the cession of lands from other states. So the president would not have any unilateral authority 
to do that. I mean, you know, we know from the steel seizure decision that the president gets his powers in only two ways. Either it's directly, explicitly in the Constitution, like he's got the power to veto legislation and, of course, then to suffer an override of his veto by the House or the by the House and the Senate. Or the president gets his power through a congressional delegation of power. So I am unaware that Congress has ever said that the president can exercise unilateral control over the Metropolitan Police Department. And that was precisely, you know, the kind of um, government that that was transcended in 1973 with the D.C. Home Rule Act. I mean, there there were three commissioners who basically ran the district before 1973. There was very little electoral self-government, popular self-government by the people there. And there might have been those kinds of powers before. And I seem to be recollecting some images of the president uh, sending the National Guard after the assassination of Dr. King to put down different kinds of protests. But I don't think that the president has that power now. I'm not aware of it. Congressman, I want to push back a little bit on um, the assertion that it would be unconstitutional for the president to invoke the Insurrection Act on his own. Of course, it was last invoked by President George H.W. Bush in the L.A. riots in, in 1992. That was in response to a request from the state, but it was also invoked by President Eisenhower in 1957 to protect the Little Rock Nine, the uh, African-American school children who were uh, trying to go to integrated schools, and that wasn't done at the request of Orville Faubus, the uh, uh, segregationist governor of Arkansas. So, you know, the, the, the president may have the authority to do this, whether it's wise or not, is another question. But I want to come back to William Barr for a moment. I remember, I think it was a, no more than a month or so ago, that Chairman Nadler of the Judiciary Committee, which you're on, had announced Barr was going to come before the committee for a hearing. Um, we haven't heard anything more about that since. Why hasn't Barr been called by the committee? Well, you know, we're between a rock and a hard place. You know, we assert an absolute congressional right to every citizen's testimony. And that includes the attorney general and anybody else that we call. Traditionally, this has been a realm reasonable people negotiating what makes sense. I mean, obviously, we're not going to make him testify for 24 hours straight or something like that. But at the same time, he must come and testify about what's taking place in the Department of Justice. The president has rebuffed, I think, over 65 or 70 congressional subpoenas and demands for information and requests. And we are litigating all of this in court now. So we know exactly which way it will lead if we start issuing subpoenas to Attorney General Barr. But did, didn't Barr agree to come? Well, yeah, I mean, he has said he'd come, but he, every time there, there's a reason he can't come, you know, whatever it might be, you know, it might be COVID-19 or, you know, so we, I mean, he's demonstrated he's not serious about coming before the House Judiciary Committee. Congressman, I, I'd like to just switch gears for a moment here and talk about the seemingly intractable issue of police brutality and racial bias in, in American policing. And you sit on the House Judiciary Committee, and after crises like this, uh, Congress often uh, tries to institute reform through le legislation. So let's talk a little bit about what Congress might do 
to deal with these issues and about specific legislative proposals that you support that you think ought to ought to pass. Uh, you know, one would be legislating that would ban the use of chokeholds. Another might be lowering the bar for federal uh, civil rights prosecutions and police brutality cases. Talk to us about what you think needs to be done on the legislative front um, and what you think has a, actually has a, a chance of succeeding. Great. And I, I see why you say it's seemingly intractable, the problem of police brutality. It's because it has been so historically entrenched that police forces have felt in so many places at so many different times in our history that African-Americans have no rights the white man is bound to respect, as the Supreme Court so delicately put it in the Dred Scott decision, finding that you know Dred Scott could not sue for his liberty because he could not be a citizen within the meaning of the diversity jurisdiction clause. So yes, that has been the baseline pattern of American history. On the other hand, it is not intractable in the sense that we know exactly the kinds of things that need to be done in order to make it better. And there are lots of success stories around the country. I mean, take Oakland, for example, which used to have nine or 10 police killings of civilians a year and now is down to zero because there was the political leadership in place that said, we've got to act in order to address this problem. And there are things that we can do. And generally, they involve categorical bright line rules. We do not use chokeholds, for example. We do not use other mechanisms of asphyxiation as a uh, law enforcement tactic. Well, that works. That w- that's one way that you work to dramatically reduce the killings of civilians. You integrate the police forces through aggressive affirmative action and diversity efforts. That works. So, you know, we already have a list of about 15 or 20 different things that need to happen if we're going to get serious about this problem. But do we allow police departments, states, and municipalities to get there on their own, or do we need federal mandates? Well, I think we're going to need to struggle at every level of government, at the local government, the state level, and at the federal level. I mean, I think history teaches us that if you do it just at one level, it is not lasting and enduring. I mean, that's kind of the story of the Reconstruction after the Civil War, where you know, the the sending of federal forces into the states for the purposes of transferring land and power and voting rights to the to the free play population to African Americans succeeded as long as they were there. And then there was a political deal, and it ended. And then you know the redeemers took over, and the many of the southern states, most of the southern states, just slipped back into all of the habits of political white supremacy and. There's a great book by a guy at the Wall Street Journal named Douglas Blackman, yeah. called Slavery by Any Other Name, which, which you know, describes that whole process. So um, I think we're going to have to do it at every level. What we can do at the federal level is we can attach conditions to federal police funding that we send out to the states to make sure that their use of, um, of lethal force is restricted to only the most extreme necessity. And believe it or not, most jurisdictions still don't have that. In other words, they don't have a definition of when you can use, when the police can use force or even deadly force against uh, the population. So we want to define that very clearly. That will be a categorical rule. And then you cross that, then all bets are off in terms of what happens to you. But we've got to bolster and strengthen Section 1983 civil damages against officers so they 
don't get off scot-free. And by the way, we need to do that against ourselves, against the federal government, because the right-wing courts and the Supreme Court have been undermining the so-called Bivens remedy, which is your ability to get civil damages against police officers, FBI, and so on. If they violate your civil rights, that's been whittled down to a shadow of itself. And we've got to breathe some life back into that. So um, all of these you know, federal officers who are now unleashed on the streets understand that it can't be a field day on the rights of the people. How about as one condition requiring every uh, cop at every police academy or would-be cop at police academy to watch the George Floyd video and describe exactly what that, those cops were doing that was wrong? Well, the, the video definitely has a profound effect on people who are seeing it, as you can tell from the hundreds of thousands or millions of people who've taken to the streets in nonviolent protests against against what took place. And there are a lot of police officers, by the way, a lot of law enforcement people who are taking a knee and are participating in these protests. And so that's an important point to make. But generally, your point is correct that it's got to be a critical aspect of training, not just treat people in a decent and civil way, the way that you would want a member of your family to be treated if they were to protest or they were arrested by the police, but also making clear to them what the very clear criminal penalties and civil penalties are for violating it. Because there have been these cultures of licentiousness and violence on so many, in so many police departments for a long time. And we've got to break that culture and make people understand that all of us who are in uh, the public service are nothing but the servants of the people. And you don't abuse the rights of the people. Here in American democracy, the people are the masters. Is there a uh, opportunity here for bipartisan legislation that could also pass the Senate as well? Well, I got to say, I was cheered by what the ranking Republican said today on the Constitution subcommittee of uh, House Judiciary, Mr. Johnson from Louisiana. He started by saying that he watched the tape and he could not conclude anything other than it was cold-blooded murder. And he said, and I wrote it down, and I told him I was going to quote it on him, we need transforma- transformative solutions for systemic change. So, I, you know, I want to take them at their word here. You know, some of them have already decided that all they want to talk about is the looting and the, the violence, which is, I think, the completely wrong way of, of thinking about this. You know, we don't know, first of all, where the looting and violence is coming from. It's got to stop, and we are, we're all opposed to it. But what the vast majority of the people in the streets are out agitating for is reform of the police department so we don't get similarly excessive violence and antisocial behavior by individual bad cops. Back to Attorney General Barr, what would you like to see him do right now? What is he not doing that you would like to see the attorney general do at this moment? Well, I mean, that that is such a fantastic hypothetical. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. Uh, But let's say we had a real attorney. (laughs) That he would take advice from you, basically, right? Right. It wouldn't happen. But, But imagine we had a real attorney general like Eric Holder. Eric Holder, first of all, probably would be in the streets trying to calm the situation. But then he also would be working closely with Congress to say, here's what has worked in different jurisdictions to dramatically lower incidences of police abuse of civilian rights. And and here's the package that we're going to send you over from the administration. And we'd love to work with the House Judiciary Committee in coming up with a comprehensive package. We would not be on our own. 
Instead, you know, you, you got William Barr out there as the consigliere to Donald Trump figuring out uh, how to shut down protests out in the street when Donald Trump finally emerged from the bunker and figured he wasn't too scared to walk across the street to pick up a Bible he's never opened a day in his life and wave it over his head, you know, and all of that was concocted and choreographed by William Barr. So William Barr in a better world uh, would be disbarred for his uh, repeated attacks on the rule of law and on the Constitution. And the Constitution for William Barr, just like Donald Trump, means whatever he wants it to mean for his political purposes on any given day. Well, the Congress doesn't have the power to disbar him, but they do have the power <laughs> to impeach him. Is that something you would support? Well, it, it, you know, it, it's all a question of, of allocating our energies at this point. I mean, we're in the fight of our lives here to defend American democracy and the Constitution and the civil rights and liberties of the people. And if I thought that that was a productive way to go, that there was any hope of it in the Senate, and that might uh, change the bellicose and belligerent and unlawful policies of the administration, I would do it. But I I don't have any real hope for the Republicans in the Senate. And I I probably don't think that that's the best, or I don't think that's the (laughs) best use of our time right now. Congressman, I got one final question on a subject we amazingly haven't touched on, and that's the COVID crisis. You represent Montgomery County, which is one of the wealthier suburbs in the country. And yet, remarkably, as I understand it, Montgomery County has the highest rates of COVID in the state of Maryland, which has very high numbers. Why is that the case? And what is being done about it? First of all, I represent Montgomery County and Frederick County and Carroll County. So I I have both a suburban district, very suburban, which is Montgomery, a very rural district, which is Carroll, and kind of a mixed district, uh, Frederick, which also is politically kind of purplish um, in the middle. Well, look, COVID-19 attacked everybody. I mean, I, I thought it was absolutely sinful and unforgivable when Republicans started to say that this is a blue state disease or uh, Mitch McConnell said, oh, well, we'll let the states and counties and local governments go bankrupt. I mean, th- that is the most unpatriotic sentiment I can imagine anybody expressing in the middle of a plague, you know. Now, in terms of Montgomery County, I mean, I have constituents all over the county who have come down with COVID-19. We have a lot of nursing homes in Montgomery County, and we also have very large minority communities that have fallen disproportionately victim to the disease, especially right around where I live in Silver Spring and Wheaton and Langley Park. And so, um, You know, I mean, who's getting it now? The frontline workers and people who have to go out to work, people who are living in more densely populated housing in apartment buildings, people who have to use elevators or, you know, congregate down at the mailboxes. I mean, it's just like New York City. And of course, in New York, it has not not just been a poor people's disease. It affects everybody. And we've got to try to unify the country around fighting the disease. We need precisely what the administration has not given us, which is a a national public health strategy organized around aggressive testing, contact tracing, quarantine, and then public health measures. And it's been scandalous the way that they've moved to uh, reopen business and restaurants and bars without getting the virus under control. It's a very scary situation. 
kind of crazy that the, the the last question and the only question about a <laughs> pandemic, you know, that's taken the uh, lives of over a hundred thousand Americans. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that's that's where we are in this country right now. But uh, Congressman, uh, good of you to give us your time again, and uh, we look forward to having you back on the podcast many times in the future. Good. I look forward to it and know that it's not my political party or any leader I support who's shoving around the reporters and tear casting them right now. Uh, the, the media are the people's best friend, not their, not their worst enemy. So thank you for what you do. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. But we'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We now have with us Marin Costa and Emily Cunningham, the two Amazon whistleblowers uh, we had on a few weeks ago. They're with the Amazon Employees for Climate Justice, who had a lot of really eye-opening things to say about Amazon. And there are new developments over the past week, which is why we want to have them back. Marin and Emily, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So what really grabbed my attention, we had the great discussion a few weeks ago about uh, conditions in Amazon warehouses during the COVID crisis, the firing of um, the two of you for speaking out about problems within Amazon. Amazon counters beyond firing the two of you by producing this video masquerading as a news report about all the great things Amazon is doing to protect its workers. And this Amazon-produced news report then shows up on over a dozen TV stations around the country. I want to talk about that, but let's play some clips from this Amazon-produced TV spot that aired as a real TV spot on some local TV stations. Millions of Americans staying at home are relying on Amazon. Millions of Americans staying at home are relying on Amazon. Millions of Americans staying at home are relying on Amazon. Amazon has transformed its operations in response to COVID-19 to protect employees and keep packages flowing. Amazon has transformed its operations in response to COVID-19 to protect employees and keep packages flowing. The company is keeping employees safe and healthy. The company is keeping its employees safe and healthy. The company is keeping its employees safe and healthy. Well, it's it's really, it, it's, it's funny on the one hand, and it's really kind of terrifying on the other. <laughs> wow, you know, it's sort of brainwashing in plain sight, you know, and, and that they decided that that was okay to just read that verbatim. I mean, that's not, that's not real journalism. And we should be very concerned that that many stations and reporters and, and news people were willing to just be like uh, fed like a fattened goose, you know, it, it was pretty shocking. Your thoughts, Emily? 
Yeah, well, similarly to Marin, it would be funny if it wasn't so appalling and devastating. And when people don't have the real information, people's lives are on the line. And so it's it's not actually funny. And Amazon's head of PR, Jay Carney, used to be a journalist for many, many years. And it's really disappointing when journalists turn to basically the dark side and are willing to spin out lies and misinformation for profit rather than protecting both workers' health and public safety. Well, we we know Jay well. We uh, competed against him when he was in the Washington Bureau of Time magazine, and we were working at Newsweek. Mike, first of all, I got to say, uh, you disappointed that uh, Jay didn't try to didn't send one of those transcripts to Skullduggery. <laughs> we could I mean, have had a field day lampooning it. Um, but I should point out that I did reach out to Jay Carney and the rest of the Amazon PR team last night to let them know we were going to do this episode and asked Jay and his people a bunch of specific questions, one of which was on the scripted TV spot, why Amazon felt the need to script news stories for local TV stations. And from Jeff Bezos's perspective, as owner of a newspaper, would he ever permit company scripted stories to run in the Washington Post? And uh, Jay did not get back, but he had uh, one of his minions do so, who gave us a bunch of statements that I want Marn and uh, Emily to react to. And the first one, in response to the questions about uh, the video, the on-the-record statement from an Amazon spokesperson, no name identified, Quote, we welcome reporters into our buildings, and it's misleading to suggest otherwise. This type of video was created to share an inside look into the health and safety measures we've rolled out in our buildings and was intended for reporters who, for a variety of reasons, weren't able to come tour one of our sites themselves. What do you folks make of that response? It's so transparent. It's like it almost doesn't even deserve a response. If Amazon really wants transparency, why isn't it releasing the number of COVID cases in its warehouses? Why it's not releasing the number of deaths of warehouse workers? If it really cared so much about transparency, so much about the truth, why aren't they providing that information when it has been asked very directly numerous times by numerous news outlets? Yeah, and I should just point out, by the way, that obviously the Amazon spokesperson did not address the particular question about why uh, the company felt the need to uh, manufacture that video and feed it to TV stations. But go ahead, Marn. Well, they also just always have their convenient glossed over response like you say it doesn't address the question you know just like when you ask them how many covid cases in the warehouse well that's not an important number we're just not going to share that number because it's not an important number or why we were fired they broke numerous or any any of the eight people that were fired they broke numerous policies it's all so hand wavy and it doesn't uh, it doesn't sound truthful I wish someone would make just a clip of of all of the Amazon execs flubbing around, stumbling around, not answering the question of how many COVID cases are there. And it's like, oh, well, that's not important. What? It's not important. It's not important to you, maybe, but to those workers, to their families, to their coworkers, to the public, 
it's pretty damn important. And yeah. everybody believes that's important. Everybody else is reporting numbers. That's all we hear all day long in the news is numbers. So I don't know what's more cynical or what's more appalling, the cynicism of the uh, Amazon PR department to put out scripts like this to uh, local outlets and, and anchors or the, um, the news outlets actually running with it. I mean, it does say something about um, the kind of poor state of local news in this country and their resources are pretty badly dried up and, and I, I guess they feel the need to cut these kinds of corners. I wonder, um, do you know if now that these outlets and these anchors have been exposed, have any of them come forward and acknowledged that what they did was a mistake? I don't Not know. That. I haven't heard that, but it's possible. Um, but I, 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 I haven't heard that. Just to close the loop on the failure to release the numbers, uh, needless to say, my second question to Amazon last night was, what can you tell us about the numbers of people who have been infected and died in your warehouses, working in your warehouses? And the response from the Amazon spokesperson on the record is, our rates of infection are at or below the rates of the communities where we operate. We see that in our quarantine rates. Quarantine rates are a critical part to understanding what's happening in the workplace. So they did not respond to the question of how many. They simply said the rates of infection are at or below the rates of communities where we operate. And I actually question that. I would ask Amazon, let's have a third party independent observer look at those numbers and, and analyze how they're counting cases and and really look into that. Because I, I if they're not willing to release the numbers... I think we should be very skeptical of any information that they're telling us. Exactly. Yeah. How, how can we know that that's true? It's the same thing that they also say. Their, their bar lately seems to be, we are as good as the worst person in the room. You know, we are at least as good as the worst person in the room. They, they say that for the same, that's their same argument for, are you paying workers enough? Are you giving them enough sick leave? Are you, you know, and since when is Amazon's bar that low? I mean, they're yeah. the richest company yeah, with, and, led by the richest man. And we're talking, we're talking about human lives. You know, we're talking about people. These aren't just numbers. These are people's sisters and daughters and brothers and uncles and grandmothers. These are people that other people love. And I think it's so important to talk about how racism is a part of this, that indigenous communities and black communities are dying at such higher rates. And there's such a big portion of Amazon warehouse workers that are black employees and other people of color. And they are putting their lives on the line. And right now when, you know, we have George Floyd murdered by cops and we have this kind of disregard for black and brown lives. I, it's just, it's so, it's hard to stomach and it's completely wrong and needs to be stand, stood up against. So Marin and Emily, uh, the other thing that happened uh, is that Amazon held a virtual shareholder meeting and you were able to attend it. There were a bunch of proposals that were made. I think you were able to have your voices heard a little bit. Take us inside a Jeff Bezos, Amazon shareholder meeting. What was that like? What kinds of opportunities did you get to have your voices heard? And what do you think it achieved? Well, the, the first thing that was very striking and not surprising was the huge PR megaphone. The meeting started out just 
blasting about how Amazon is doing such a great job during this time of COVID and keeping their workers safe. Was that with videos? How do they how do they blast that out? Yep, they played a video. Maybe it was just video. But I think I feel like it was numerous videos. They, they spent for how much time that the annual general meeting was, where, where these shareholder resolutions were proposed and voted on. It was a huge, like very significant amount of time, and it was uh, it was just infuriating. Uh, they had things like it had a worker on saying something like it's like a chocolate factory, <laughs> and like. Chocolate. It was and like, like they went overboard on protection. Overboard is so much safety happening, and so meanwhile, you know, the L.A. Times just re- reported on the death of Harry Santoso, whose son Evan reached out to Marin and I two days after the story broke of us being fired, saying that his father had passed away four days prior, and he was just close. He was 63 years old, just on the edge of retirement, wanted to have a little bit more money before going into retirement and and contracted COVID and went into work actually sick with COVID because, you know, Amazon doesn't provide health insurance to many of its employees and died and infected his wife as well. And so his son, Evan, who contacted us, didn't even get to say goodbye to his father. What, what was his father's uh, job? He, he was a warehouse worker. A warehouse worker where? In, in Southern what? California, in, I think Irvine, California. He had, he had just started another contract, so he was only a week or two in when, when he died. He had always wanted to be full-time so that he could have more of that, more of the benefits and more of the security, but he would always get laid off seasonally as the work uh, went down. So Bezos spoke at the shareholder meeting. Tell us what he said. Well, I wanted to say, too, the other, the other thing besides safety in the warehouses during COVID— the other, you know, megaphone moment in the meeting was climate. So they were blasting about both COVID and climate. And I think it's really interesting because those are the issues that that we have been pressuring them on. And in some ways, it's really positive to think that it, it, it sounds like they are actually responding to us without admitting that they're responding to us. But they're they're hearing us and responding to us. And they know that that those are the two places where they're weak. So they're really trying to build their story that they're doing a great job on both of those. And so what did Bezos say in the meeting? He was asked directly something like, you know, uh, were these workers, and it wasn't just Marin and I who were fired for organizing for better working conditions in warehouses. It was, you know, warehouse workers actually that came first and have been fired for organizing simply for having basic, basic safety conditions, like cleaning the warehouse um, adequately. I mean, very, very basic things. People were targeted and and fired for standing up. And in Tim Bray, the, the VP, the Amazon VP who resigned over Amazon firing whistleblowers, he mentions that the people that have been fired have been people of color or women or both. And all of the workers in his blog post were all, warehouse workers were all, all black employees, three black men and one black woman. And then you have Marn and I who are two white women tech workers. And so, uh, yeah, so anyways, he was asked directly something like, are these workers being fired for speaking out? And he said, no. And he repeated the PR lines that have been said for the last month mm-hmm. that people can speak up, but that doesn't give them immunity to break any kind of policy that they want. 
something like that. It was, as Tim Bray said in his blog post, in his resignation blog post, the justifications for firing Marin and I and the other warehouse workers are laughable. On top of that, there were 15 shareholder resolutions. All 15 of them were turned down. And the response is always, you know, from Amazon, from Jeff, we're already doing that. It's sort of a real out-of-touch arrogance. Even in response to, you know, we had an environmental justice, environmental racism, shareholder resolution, and the response is, we're already taking care of that. We're already doing that. Well, how would you know that you're doing that when you're not even talking to the people on the ground? It's like they're believing their own PR spin. So one of the things, I mean, I, I assume those resolutions get voted down because you just don't have the votes. I mean, Bezos probably, I don't know what percentage of- I think he owns 15%. 15%, and then you have these big institutional institutional shareholders. But I wonder if, as part of your activism, what you are doing or might do in the future is to try to organize among shareholders to see if you can make any dent there and, and um, you know, try to just a little bit of um, kind of shareholder activism and whether that's a strategy you might pursue. You know, the shareholder resolutions, even when they pass, they're non-binding. But what they do do is send a powerful message to companies about the concerns of shareholders. And so last year when we did our climate shareholder resolution, there's two firms, I'm forgetting their names, but they basically have 97% of the proxy advisor market. So, you know, all of the companies, they don't have time to research all of the different resolutions. So they hire these kind of firms to, to advise them on how to vote. And these firms sided with us on our shareholder resolution last year. And so it, it's really about I think shareholder activism, there's many different dimensions to it, but it's about sending a signal to the company. It's about, but it's also about mobilizing workers and the public. And because it's it's out there and it has these very reliable things like, okay, at this date that you, you submit it, this date, they have a chance to respond. So that there's always already sort of a cycle built into it. And so I, I think that shareholders are an important part of the mix, but I also think that you know, workers are a big part of that, uh, as well as different community members. And so for, for this year, we partnered with an organization in a nonprofit, I believe they're a nonprofit, in the Inland Empire called CCAJ. And they um, are a group focused on environmental racism because our research showed that 80% of Amazon's non-tech buildings, so like warehouses, are in communities that have a large percentage of people of color in them. And so you have like 20,000 trucks per day coming in and out of these communities that are hurting the lung um, health, hurting, you know, cancer rates are up, all of these things. And if you think about young children being exposed to this kind of pollution, we have two people from our climate group who are raised in this part of the country, right in this area, this zip code. And one of them described to me that their mom could not open the window even when it was hot because when they did, there was a soot of like this black dust like on the windowsills in their home. So if you can imagine just breathing in this kind of air every day, Harvard study showed that people with reduced lung capacity are more likely to die of COVID. So this is all related. And of course, these are in black and brown communities and are treated as sacrificial zones we had two kids from that community speak. Each shareholder resolution is given two minutes to speak during the meeting, and we got a couple of them to join our two minutes to tell their story directly. And it was incredibly powerful 
you know, they have all of their friends have asthma. Their their mom works in um, the warehouses. They don't feel that she her health is protected. They don't feel that her life is valued. You know, this is what they grow up with. This is this is everybody's life in that community. You know, it's really sad. It's also like Amazon will say, oh, well, we're bringing these jobs. Actually, the jobs that they're bringing are not good jobs. They're temporary jobs. They're um, part-time jobs. Extremely hard on your body, physically hard on your body. And no health insurance, as you pointed out the last time. The the contractors don't get a community agreement. So if you're going to be coming to our community and hurting our community, we need you to do these things to make it more manageable for us. Yeah, Marin, uh, when you, we had you on the last time, you had some fascinating insights into Bezos himself. Um, you were a senior uh, product designer. Uh, you said that uh, in the old days, Bezos was uh, very accessible, would even go into the warehouses and help, uh, you know, package uh, some of the, uh, uh, the items that people were ordering, but that he's become increasingly sort of removed and doesn't do that anymore. What was your sense of Bezos's attitude during this fair shareholder meeting? Did he seem to be taking the criticisms and complaints seriously? Was he brushing them off? Give us your sense, because you know him, of how Bezos seemed to be processing all this. I have not heard any openness to this. It is all deflection. I don't, there is no admission of any possibility that Amazon has done anything other than what is absolutely perfect. There's a real arrogance there. And it's not the kind, you know, there was always an arrogance at Amazon. And you have to have a certain amount of arrogance to get to the place where Amazon has gotten to. You know, Jeff has always been like, we're not going to worry about uh, shareholders. Wall Street isn't going to, you know, short term value. We're going to keep, we're going to stick to our guns and our path and our, and our, you know, plan and, 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 you know, and that has borne out to be true. He's definitely a great corporate leader, CEO. I don't see him as somebody who understands how things land on people. (laughs) He's not someone with a great deal of empathy or intuition about human beings. And the more he is allowed to sort of run free and not have those checks and balances from people who do have the capacity to sort of see humans as humans and not robots, I I think he gets into really dangerous territory. While Amazon has been very well positioned and done very well in this, the age that we've been in, we are heading into a completely different transformative time that our values are being reconsidered, our priorities are infrastructure, because scientists from around the world, the United Nations have gathered scientists and scientists are saying we need transformation in our societies at all levels, from our technology to our values. And so, you know, incumbents and people that have been doing well in this time really, really, really need need to listen to others and to see what's coming because big changes are already underway and we're going to see radical transformations. I'm interested in that, Emily, because I was going to ask you how you guys uh, would define success in this struggle uh, that you're waging. And I guess the other question that what you just said 
prompts me to ask is, you know, you talk about things are changing, people's values are being reconsidered, tr- transformational change. But Bezos, meanwhile, is making $9 million an hour. He doesn't seem like he's changing a lot. I mean, what makes you say that he is going to have to change? And what makes you optimistic that this transformation is going to happen? Is there And, and is there anything that you have seen so far in terms of his behavior or Amazon's as a corporation that gives you hope that things will change? My hope is not, I don't rely on my hope about anything to do with Bezos himself. Uh, I just look at the world around me. Like, you know, if you looked a year and a half ago, the Green New Deal wasn't anything anyone knew about. And it was Sunrise Movement and other youth activists that took that by storm. And then you had the, it forced the Democratic contenders for, for president to really push climate forward. You have Greta Thunberg, who started as one person in front of Swedish parliament, just one person with one sign. And now you have millions of people around the world, both youth and adults, um, you know, this is before COVID when we could still march, taking the world by storm. And you just look at even product design and S-curves as far as, you know, infiltration, you know, before there was like hardly any cell phones anywhere. And then it started to gather and then boom, like it just exploded. Same with electric vehicles. It used to be this sort of luxury, high-end sort of thing that people did. And now we're seeing automotive companies do full on full electric. And so this is where, if you just look at the, even the market, when you look at the market of wind, it's now, it's not going fast enough, but the market itself is showing that wind and solar are outperforming oil and gas and will very quickly take that over. And we're already seeing like the, a peak in an oil. So that doesn't mean that we don't, we still have to have the policy in place because we'll still have oil dependency unless we have the policy behind it. But this is where the entire world is shifting. And it needs to shift because more and more people are waking up to these extreme weather events, crop failures, all kinds of harm. And that, that we know that this is only going to get worse and worse. I want to uh, correct myself. I said before that uh, Bezos owned 15% of Amazon's stock. It's actually, I just checked, uh, 11% uh, worth about $138 billion, at least as of a few weeks ago. I think he did have 15%, but he uh, 4% went to Mackenzie Bezos, his ex-wife, as part of the divorce settlement. So just want to be precise about all things we say on um, skullduggery. Marin, go ahead. <laughs> in response to to that question, and and also in response to you know, are we considering you know organizing shareholders? The other important audience at these annual shareholder meetings are investors. And what gives me hope is that we start to see money moving from big oil into uh, or just out of big oil because it's becoming a liability. People are understand, beginning to understand the concept of stranded assets and, you know, ensuring these companies who are, are going to, you know, be in big trouble in the next it's like asbestos. It's like as if you were investing in asbestos or something like, like yeah. it, it's insanity. Like this is where the world is going. You, you see these um, financial wonks, pundits on the news talking about how, you know, they're out, they're out of oil and gas yep. because this is even before the pandemic started yep. that you saw people, this is like oil, oil and gas are really in death nail. Yeah. So. And when in capitalism, when the money moves, you know, the power shifts. 
Google recently said that they, they have their cloud computing business and their artificial intelligence that was helping oil and gas companies to accelerate oil and gas um, extraction. And they are now out of that business. Unfortunately, Microsoft and Amazon are still in partnership and in bed with oil and gas companies, helping them in addition to find new wells that used to take an, yeah. a month to find now takes about eight hours. Well, uh, let me just drop in here. Uh, I think, Maren, you said uh, when the money moves, uh, companies respond. Well, the, the fact is that more money is moving to Amazon today uh, during this COVID crisis than ever before. And the company is getting wealthier and Bezos is getting wealthier while his uh, warehouse workers, some unknown percentage of which uh, are getting sick, uh, we don't know. But it's an important story. This is a company that we are all increasingly reliant on during this crisis. So um, it was great to have your perspectives, uh, Maren and Emily. Thanks for joining us again. And I will say that anybody who listens to this podcast um, will be 100% sure that uh, we did not get the Amazon uh, <laughs> public relations uh, script. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, Marin and Emily were definitely off script and uh, I think will remain so. So thanks a lot Co to both Co of you. Of course, of course, we're losing the chance to get any Amazon advertising by keep having uh, Marin and Emily on. But, but we'll take that hit. Thanks to the two of you. Thanks to both of you. Thanks so much. Right. Thank you for telling the closer to real story, I would say. <laughs> okay. Thanks to Yahoo News White House correspondent Hunter Walker and Congressman Jamie Raskin for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.